Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Hello and welcome to a very, very special episode of HashiCast. Uh, I have a very special guest with me today. Um, he is a HashiCorp ambassador. Um, really, really happy to have him on the show today. I would like to introduce you all to Brian Cruson. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. If you'd like to uh, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Rob. So yeah, definitely appreciate the uh, opportunity to, to come on the HashiCast here. Um, yeah, so again, Brian Krausen. Uh, been working with HashiCorp products for, I don't know, probably closer to four years now. Uh, mostly specialized in Vault and console, although I'm picking up TFE and things like that pretty quickly. Um, so yes, I mean, I've got, you know, a lot of, I've been doing a lot of different things with the HashiCorp community in general. Um, I've spoken at probably six or seven different hugs throughout the, mostly the Eastern US. But um, so I've been, I've talked to HashiConf 2019, obviously 2020. And then uh, Hashi Talks, I think the first one uh, as well. And yeah, I was happy to uh, you know be uh, added to the uh, you know the inaugural um, Hashi uh, Ambassadors uh, group as well. So yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I think the f- the first time we actually sort of spoke properly was actually during the um, first HashiConf Digital. I think we had a live Q and A uh, discussion panel, which is about the. Um, certifications that HashiCorp is doing. So I think you had some really good insights into that. And based on that, I, I was really excited to see you come to uh, the next HashiConf. Um, amazing talk. Um, so I wanted to dive a little bit into the details, a bit of the weeds about that. Um, so uh, if we start with uh, the journey that uh, an organization takes when they're adopting Vault, um, you mentioned showing value to organizations. Uh, so can you kind of just give me some uh, high-level overview as to what some of the quick wins are and how you can a- approach these things? Um, you mentioned in things like security and trying to get buy-in from different uh, sort of uh, business units. So can you kind of just tell us a bit more about that journey? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as a consultant, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different customers, uh, you know, both designing and implementing Vault uh, within their environment. So, you know, I think the biggest thing to me is obviously, like you said, getting buy-in from the organization. So, you know, it's great if the cloud team or the security team or whatever, you know, is interested in in Vault, but you have to get buy-in from a lot of the different um, organizations, you know, within the business, right? So, you know, obviously you want to get security buy-in, right? Because a lot of times security, they are the ones who uh, may even run it um, or they may just, you know, be able to manage, um, you know, manage Vault in terms of, um, you know, the policies and, and things like that. But, you know, obviously what you want to do is also get, you know, the cloud team, the DevOps team, you know, all those other kind of teams on board because, you know, Vault is going to help them uh, enable the automation of both storing and creating secrets, Right. And so instead of giving, uh, you know, things like Terraform a very long lived credential, right, we can we can uh, have Terraform go to vault and get this dynamic credential that's only lasts for an hour or 10 minutes or however long that Terraform is going to take to run the apply. And then that credential is no longer valid anymore. So getting the buy in and and proving to the organization, uh, you know, what, you know, policies and procedures that that vault will solve for them, uh, I think is going to be huge. Right. So you think about, 
uh, some of the policies that security puts in place uh, around, say, service accounts, right? Most organizations have some policy that says, hey, at least once a year, right, this password has to be uh, rotated, right? And so if we, if we get rid of that long-lived service account and we put Vault in place of it, generating these dynamic service accounts, now that's assuming the application can support it, um, then we're, you know, we can go back to security and we can say, Hey, remember that long lived security account that, uh, you know, has to be rotated once a year. And every year we had to go through the process of making sure that was done and all that. Well, guess what? We don't have to worry about that anymore because we're actually rotating that thing like every 15 minutes now. And if actually, whenever a job is not running, there's actually no credential at all, right. To access this, the thing that we're accessing, whether that's public cloud or, you know, some other infrastructure. So. Um, I think that's that's the big thing too is you know showing value to the business and and showing like hey these are the things from a business perspective that Vault is providing us right now. Absolutely, and I think one of the methods that uh, a lot of people, myself included, use to try to do that is uh, building proof of concepts and sort of demoing it to the different business units and sort of asking for their input and trying things out. Uh, so we do a lot of spikes. Um, the problem with that is what I've noticed in a lot of organizations is you mess around with a proof of concept and eventually it organically grows into a production deployment of mm-hmm. uh, Vault. Um, and the thing is, unless you've you've been through Vault deployments in the past, you, you probably would have made some some mistakes in the sense that uh, maybe it's not truly aligned to how your organization is, is operating. Um, so, I mean... One of my biggest lessons learned with that is, you know, when you've used a proof of concept to gain buy-in, that's kind of served its purpose. So you should document all your lessons learned and throw it away, basically, and start from scratch, build yep. um, from from the ground up. Um, so once you start doing these kind of things, once you start actually um, deploying after you've been through a discovery phase, one of the things that I noticed, which I, I want to get your thoughts on, is People think they know what they want, um, but as you start to develop uh, a Vault deployment and they start to use it, they realize actually it's something else they need. How do you kind of deal with this change in landscape when it comes to uh, giving people a solution that works for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So yeah, I'll address the POC thing first because I've done that uh, multiple times with customers. So uh, you know, whenever I go into a customer and we're deploying a POC and it's, you know, it's clearly, you know, communicated that like, hey, this environment that we're working on right now is POC. Like we never, ever, ever want to put production data in here. Um, and so what I do, I plaster POC all over it. Like the name of the vault node is vault node POC. The the, the DNS name is something POC, right? It's, it's, you know, something that just like visually sees like, you know, that, that visually like a customer can look at and like, oh, this should not go into production, Right. And a huge part of, of uh, that as well is, you know, being able to deploy Vault, um, you know, using something using like infrastructure as code, whether that's Terraform or, you know, ARM or CloudFormation or something like that. But, you know, being able to automate that. And so then once the PLC is up and running, uh, once it's done, then we can easily just do a Terraform destroy and get rid of it. But then we can use that same Terraform and bring up like, you know, more of a, a production environment or a dev environment. And, you know, because as we step up, so. So yeah, that's that's how I address a lot of those things for the organization is, you know, plaster the name all over it. So they, you know, they're almost afraid to put that thing into production. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, to go back to the other question, you know, a lot of times, you know, at, I step through that, you know, with organizations. So we'll do the POC, 
like, okay, that's great. Let's deploy, you know, a dev cluster, right? And a lot of times most, most businesses will uh, go to HashiCorp, especially if they're buying like a vault enterprise and they'll say, um, hey, we want a license for our dev environment. Right. And, and it, it becomes, I would say, somewhat production only because the development environment, you know, eventually um, eventually becomes reliant on this dev cluster, because now as they're deploying um, things, you know, using Jenkins, deploy things, CICD pipelines, Terraform, all those kind of things. Like we start consuming this dev vault instance, but this dev vault instance should also be a place for the vault operators to be able to come to this new dev instance and say, hey, we want to upgrade from vault 1.4 to 1.5. So this is a cluster that we want to be able to do that with. Um, so those are the kind of things that, you know, we, we go through. It's the typical, you know, software defined lifecycle for, for vault, right? We go POC and then we go to dev and then we finally go into production. And obviously production, you know, can mean, you know, different things to different people. Uh, you know, for the large enterprise, it could mean, you know, hey, we're going to deploy, you know, seven different clusters, which I've done that for one customer. I have seven different clusters across two different clouds, including on-premises and uh, multiple dev clusters and things like that. So, um, yeah, a lot of times, you know, I hate to give the, the consultant, you know, type of answer, but, you know, a lot of times it just really depends on what the customer is trying to do and, you know, how involved that Vault is going to be within their uh, software development lifecycle. It's funny, some of the things you're saying, um, it, it really resonates with me because, as you know, I too uh, am a former consultant. So I think we mm -hmm. have... Uh, similar views on, on how to approach these things here. Uh, so just latching onto something you said about the different environments, you have a dev cluster and then eventually you would step through to what a company would identify as production. One of the things that comes up a lot, and this is not even Vault specific, this is just about platforms in general, is um, you have dev clusters for things and developers rely on these clusters to do their day-to-day -day jobs. Um, but then you might have uh, engineers in other functions, maybe operations, for example, who view it as a dev cluster. So mm -hmm. when it comes to things like patching or any kind of um, system maintenance, they feel comfortable enough to take down that cluster uh, for a temporary period of time for them to undertake their maintenance. The problem is it might be a dev cluster, but because developers are relying on it to do their day-to-day, -day, it's actually production to them, right? right. So. If we bring it back to Vault, we have the we have this concept of a dev cluster for developers, but I feel like there's also a dev cluster for Vault operators as well. Do you have sort of any views on that? I mean, because if you want to start upgrading the, the Vault version or you want to start doing different things on the system, you do risk taking down a dev cluster that developers are relying on um, and you don't really have the freedom to operate. So what are your kind of views on, on that kind of environment separation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a funny question because, you know, back in the day when I was working at a customer, you know, I own the entire infrastructure for, I don't know, 150, 200 developers, right? And all their their applications ran on my stuff, right? And so I was responsible for things like load balancers. And so what we had was we had, you know, production load balancers and we had a dev load balancers. Well, the problem is that when we bought, when we purchased like the, the dev load balancers, right, we came into the same problem. Like, hey, you know, all the development um, applications are going to run through this dev load balancer, right? And so we had the same problem. Like, we can't necessarily take it down in the middle of the day because if we do, then I've got 150 developers that can't do any work, right? And that's that's expensive, right? That's, a, <laughs> you know, you take an hour down for 150 developers, that's, you know, that, that costs the business a lot of money for, um, you know, both salary and, you know, uh, reduced down, you know, or downtime for, uh, you know, the applications and, and development and things like that. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in Vault, you know, what we could do is, you know, we can have our dev cluster that's really, you know, maintaining, um, you know, the integration between our applications. Um, but what we can also do, again, is going back to, you know, being able to deploy Vault in an automated fashion is we can take, you know, either a console snapshot or a raft snapshot, depending on which backend that you're using for Vault. We can use Terraform, or we can spin up a brand new Vault cluster, and then we can restore that snapshot onto you know, the newly, newly provisioned cluster. And so now we have a like-for-like -like environment from production into this new cluster that, uh, you know, vault operators can go in, they can make changes, they can, um, they can potentially see how, you know, applications uh, react. Maybe they can point some dev instances to it or something like that. But, but yeah, so that's, that's one way that you could do it is really spin up that new cluster, restore from backup. So it's exactly, you know, like either dev or exactly like production. Uh, do your tests, do your upgrades, things like that. Make sure it's okay. And then again, the beauty of Terraform, you know, Terraform destroy, boom, done. You know, it's it, those resources are gone. And, uh, you know, if you're in the public cloud, you know, it may cost you a dollar to run those things, you know, for a day. But, you know, you've got your testing done and you don't have to incur those, you know, monthly expenses, you know, just to run a separate cluster uh, just for, the, you know, this, this kind of testing. Amazing. So kind of... Um... Moving forward a little bit in the the adoption journey, um, let's talk a little bit about the road to live. So, in general, when we talk about onboarding to Vault, we're we're talking about onboarding our applications and onboarding users. Um, so, in terms of onboarding applications, I mean, some organizations have thousands of applications. Um, what kind of um, approaches have you sort of come across to bring these applications on board with with Vault? Uh, is it good to, I think I know the answer to this already, uh, is it good to do a big bang approach, which <laughs> oof, right. just saying that, you know, the hairs on my arm are standing up. Already, yeah, you know? it's probably not a good approach, <laughs> right? <laughs> or is there kind of a bit more of a systematic way of uh, onboarding? Um, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I have some thoughts as well, but I mean, we've got you on the show. Let, let's hear from you. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, when I've worked with customers before, um, a lot of times, you know, it's a, it's a phased approach. Um, we, you know, when I engage with the customer, so we go in and we do a design and then we actually implement vault. And then part of, you know, the sow that we put in front of the customer is says that, Hey, we're going to integrate, um, you know, up to three applications or work with three different business units within the, the, uh, organization to onboard them to vault. And so what we'll do is like after implementation, you know, we work with the vault operator team and say, Hey, which team is which team would be, um, you know, they're mostly kind of like cutting edge, like they, they want to introduce vaults into, into their environment and things like that. So we kind of get the team that's the most willing, right, to to bring their application into vault or bring their secrets or whatever. Um, and so we what we do is we want to integrate with that, uh, with that team. So we kind of start with that team and we run, you know, a mini workshop, you know, with that team. Like we kind of go in, we gather the requirements like, okay, you know, what do you know about vault? Right. And based upon that, you know, we can obviously educate them on the benefits of vault and all the things that, you know, we've done within the environment. So, you know, if the customer's an AWS customer, right, like, hey, we've already enabled AWS authentication and we've enabled AWS secrets. Uh, we can do TOTP. We can do all these other kind of things. Like these are the things that are enabled in your environment right now. Which of these things, you know, makes the most sense for your application, right? Because every application is going to be different within the organization. So, you kind of you know have to work with that team to figure out like you know what they want to consume within Vault, and then you know you do it right. <laughs> it's you know like hey we want to we want to go in there we want to you know 
pull secrets for a database, right? Because, uh, you know, we want to get rid of this long live secret, you know, that, you know, goes back to the, you know, lives for a year, right? That password, those credentials, whatever. So we want to integrate with this and we want to generate dynamic credentials for our database because maybe we only use it, you know, once a month when we're doing reporting or something like that. And so we can, you know, we can set that up, right? We can determine like how the application is going to authenticate to Vault, right? Because almost, I would say almost always, but, you know, a lot of different applications will authenticate to Vault different ways, right? So some will be able to support app role. Some want to use LDAP, right? Some want to use the AWS authentication, um, you know, method. So just, it just depends on what the application can support or what the developers want to do. Uh, we can en enable or set them up on that application. Uh, on that auth method and then obviously create a policy that, that dictates that they can only generate you know the dynamic credential for a specific database that's related to that application and so what we try to do is you know we work with one business unit you know we get them uh, all smiling like hey everything everything's going well you know and then on the on the other side like and i think we'll get to this later but you know you want to make sure you report that kind of quick win you know to the business like hey you know we just took this one service account with these multiple service accounts and we got rid of them. We don't have to worry about these anymore, right? So we're increasing the security posture of the organization while we're also integrating the applications to be able to use, you know, consume our new, um, you know, investment in Vault here. And so that's what we typically do is just go from business unit to business unit. Um, we run these workshops. We do a little education, right? Because some people may not, you know, may not be aware. Like they may have heard of Vault, but they not maybe they may not be aware of its capabilities and things like that. So that's kind of how we approach it. You know, you definitely don't want to try to, you know, the, the saying is boil the ocean, right? Because you're probably going to fail, <laughs> right? So you want to at least take it one step at a time, at least at the beginning, right? And depending on how large your vault operations team is, you know, like, look, I've worked with customers where the vault operation team was one person, right? Two people. Um, yeah. and, and they also had day jobs, right? They were also the cloud team. They also the infrastructure team. And vault was like a new, you know, responsibility for them. Uh, so it, it really also depends on the bandwidth of the team that's going to be operating Vault as well. You've mentioned a lot of things there that are really interesting. <laughs> um, so glad to know we have similar approaches. So I, this team that you're talking about, I tend to refer to them as the early adopters. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in the long term, they become your internal advocates for Vault. They're, they are going to be singing to other development teams and other business units about the successes that they've had. Yes, you've got to kind of sing your own praises as well. But naturally, if you do a good job with them and you work really well with them and they get to see the value, they're going to be happy about that and they're going to shout from the yep. rooftops. So that that's really, really powerful in, in the adoption journey. One thing that I have used uh, this early uh, adopter for in the past which I found is quite useful is writing what I like to call boilerplate code. We have to accept that when you're onboarding applications to Vault, there is um, a cost in terms of development time. They do need to rewrite some logic in the application. Um, mm -hmm. It's not huge, but it's work nonetheless. And when you kind of look at the amount of services that some teams are responsible for, uh, it adds up. So the value that I got from the, the early adopter is if they're writing these, these kind of boilerplate uh, code templates, when you go to onboard the next team, they have a really good starting point. They can literally just take this. It could be like mm -hmm. if it's Golang, it could be a package that they've, they just import and they supply some values to it. Or um, if it's C-sharp, it could be whatever it is, right? They, they can just package this thing up and other, other developers can kind of start where they finished and don't have to worry about 
figuring out how you're going to write your application to do this. You have examples there. And so I found that really, really powerful. Um, there was something else that you, you mentioned as well uh, in terms of the, uh, the quick wins. The, f- the thing that I, I wanted to pick up on that is about feedback cycle. So when you're deploying Vault, it's, it's important to have a constant feedback cycle. You always want to be listening to these early adopters. You always want to be taking their, their feedback and you want to be improving on the, the implementation so that their, their experience is uh, bettered, right? This is all about improving the developer experience, which is the key to success when it comes to security. Um, but equally, when we talk about reporting back the quick wins, this is us providing feedback to the business as well. As well. So in terms of that feedback loop, what are some of the things that you do to, to maintain that constant cycle of, of information going back and forth between the different business units and sort of make sure that um, everyone is aligned and understands where, where they're going? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, especially in today's world, in a COVID world, right, communication is key, you know, regardless of which project you're doing. But yeah, I mean, especially in a Vault environment, when you're introducing a new technology, you know, if Vault is, is happen, happens to be new to the organization, or you're just introducing a new technology to this new team, right, another business unit we were just talking about. Um, yeah, the feedback is, is absolutely critical here. So, you know, working with the team to understand like, okay, what was easy, what was hard, um, you know, and addressing those problems to make sure that, uh, you know, any of the, the snafus or whatever that you kind of run into, you know, aren't, you know, aren't repeated, um, you know, for the next team. Right. And so, you know, exactly what you're talking about, you know, we had, I had an engagement with one of the largest retailers in the U.S. that, you know, when we went in there, we were to provide, you know, kind of feedback around the vault implementation and console and things like that. But one of the things that we wanted to do is we were trying to drive adoption because the cloud team and the infrastructure team and things like that, like they loved the idea of vaults and they were using it, but they hadn't necessarily onboarded their application teams yet. And so what we were tasked to do is exactly what you just said, Rob, is to kind of go in there and say, hey, look, we've got teams that are writing in .NET and C Sharp and you know, all these different languages. Like we want the ability to onboard them quickly, right? We don't, have to, we don't want to have to send all these developers to a week-long vault class, you know, just to be able to understand like how to integrate with it. And so one of the things that we did was, was create documentation for this customer that says, hey, if you have a .NET team, like here, here's a lot of, you know, here's a document information that you can just hand over to the developers and say, hey, look, you know, we're going, we want you to integrate with us, right? We want you to start consuming vaults because it's just, you know, good for the organization, good for security, right? And we're, we're offloading a lot of the security components, you know, from you, right? We're going to take care of it. Uh, and you just, you just have to integrate you know, with Vault and we'll handle that. So, you know, that's kind of a weight off, you know, the developer's shoulders there, but, you know, being able to provide that documentation to say, hey, here's exactly, you know, uh, the integration points that you want to do. Here's here's uh, information about the APIs that you'll probably use. Here's how to integrate those with the, la- you know, your language of choice that your application is written in. And so to be able to provide that feedback. So, you know, again, we don't have to send these Vault, you know, these these developers to a Vault class because, Honestly, they they don't care. Like they don't want to know how to run Vault. They just want to be able to consume that service. Absolutely. Uh, which actually brings me on to my next question. It's like you're reading my mind. <laughs> it's it's about the training aspect of um of onboarding users mm-hmm. uh, or developers in this case here. So for some people, going on an official training course might be a good shot. It depends on what their role with Vault is. Uh, for other people, uh, maybe training should be kind of explored using different mediums. 
what kind of approaches have you seen organizations take uh, with regards to training as part of the onboarding process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of training myself, you know, um, around specifically around vaults and, and, uh, you know, some Terraform and console and things like that. But yeah, so some organizations, you know, I've, I've had it, you know, I've had organizations that are on both, both ends of the spectrum, right? I've had organizations that right now I'm helping train a lot of different, you know, bigger organizations, um, you know, on vaults. So, uh, actually I'm, I'm doing, I just got off a call yesterday where, uh, you know, the organization has already deployed vaults. Um, they have some vault operators that are pretty good, like they're getting better at it. But now they have, you know, they want to make sure that the networking team is on board, the security team is on board, like all the other people that are going to um, really be involved if vault happens to go down, right? Um, they want to train these people on vault. And, you know, and we're not going to get into like, hey, here's the command to do this thing. Like they're not going to be logging into vault, but they need to understand the conceptual overview of vault. So then when something does go down, they understand like, oh, you know, it's, you know, a cluster is, is three nodes and there's only one active node or, you know, we have multiple performance clusters and, you know, how all those kind of things work. So that's going to be critical. But, you know, so again, I've worked with customers that go from, you know, up to that point where they're like, we just need to train all the people that are going to even save vault <laughs> um, to the opposite piece where I'm, I've had customers that I've deployed vault for that you know i had been working uh, consulting there for six months and they still had not had a single person that had gone out to learn vault or um or take ownership of vault and you know throughout this entire process we were bringing this up to the executive staff and we we're like hey look you guys are running vault it's going to be a critical application in your environment right where you you are already uh, adding, you know, Lambda functions, you're adding applications and all these other things are starting to integrate with the vaults, your automation, your data team, all these kind of things, but nobody at the organization owns vault yet. And so this is a problem. And so we continue to bring this to the organization and, you know, I, it's kind of no secret. I've got a lot of, you know, training online and, you know, on, on vault and things like that. You know, it was to the point where I was giving all these videos to them for free. I'm like, just go, somebody go learn vault. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was the only person there that, you know, could could do anything with Vault. And so when they had a, a new use case or a new customer, right, an internal customer that says, hey, we heard about Vault, we want to integrate with Vault, you know, the customer didn't have, any, have anybody who could do that. Um, and so they would have to come back to me and say, hey, this customer wants to do this. So then I would run one of those little mini workshops and, you know, understand the requirements and, and things like that from the customer, the internal customer, the new business unit. But um, so yeah, I've had it on both both ways, but you know, you you've got to be able to meet it in the middle. I mean, you've got to have at least at a minimum the folks who are going to be responsible for Vault, who are going to own Vault, like they need to know Vault very well. Um, and depending on the deployment of Vault, they may need to also know console very well, right? If they're running console as a back end. Um, so you know, it, it could go either way. I mean, you know, I, I know um, you know with with uh, HashiCorp. Um, you know, cloud platform, like hopefully down the road, like, you know, there may be a vault, um, you know, offering, I have no idea, but, um, you know, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully people will, you know, be able to adopt that. And then they don't have, they have less to worry about from an infrastructure. They can just consume that service. Um, but with that said, you know, I've been talking to a lot of my colleagues and like, you know, I just don't know how many like larger enterprises are going to want to throw all their secrets into the cloud and, and let somebody else manage it too. So I think there's always going to be some aspect of some, you know, some organizations that are going to run vault on premises. Um, and then some smaller organizations or maybe these um, early adopters, like you said, 
uh, may, you know, may consume it, you know, if it's ever offered as a service, you know, down the road. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it really depends on the app or the, 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 um, the business itself. And, uh, but yeah, there's, there's always got to be some training involved. Um, you know, when I run design workshops for customers, a lot of times, you know, I want to ask the customer like, okay, how, how well versed are you on vault? Right. And if they're like, okay, you know, out of 10, we're, we're a three. Then what I want to do is I want to say, Hey, for the first day, I want to come in there and teach you about vault. Right. And it, it, we may not go super deep, but I want to make sure that you understand all the core components, you know, secrets, engines, auth methods, audit devices, storage backends, you know, unsealing, all those kind of things. And so then when we actually go into a design workshop and understand, you know, to, to figure out like, okay, what does your vault deployment look like? What does the infrastructure look like, you know, in your environment, like they can help make these educated decisions, you know, around how it should look within their environment. Because the last thing I want to go in there is just kind of dictate, like, you must have a performance cluster and you must do this and you must do this. Like, <laughs> it's not beneficial to them. It's not beneficial to me. Right. And so I want to make sure that the organization, you know, is self-sufficient. Um, and they can help make the decisions, you know, on how Vault should, um, you know, service, you know, their organization. Really quick one. Who should own Vault? Should it be a security function or an engineering function? Whew, man, it's, that's <laughs> a tough one. That is a tough one. So, you know, I would say almost, I would say 90% of the customers that I've worked with, it's almost always either the cloud team or the automation team that has brought, you know, the opportunity to us to come in and design and things. Um, you know, security, you know, we always say like, okay, you guys are gonna own it, but like, where's the security team? Like we're looking around, like, you know, how involved are they? Um, so yeah, it's security absolutely should be a part of it. I don't know if they should own it. Um, you know, I've, I've also seen organizations I've worked with who actually had a dedicated kind of an IAM, um, you know, team. So they, you know, they already had say a cyber arc or something like that, you know, competing product in there. And they had a team that was already managing that. And so, you know, there's one time I was in a workshop, there's probably, I kid you not, probably 50 people, at least in the room. And most of them, you know, were a, were a two out of a 10 in terms of like vault knowledge, like they could spell vault, that was about it. And, um, you know, I raised the question and I'm like, you know, I'm leading the room here, standing up and everyone else is just watching me. I'm like, all right, who is going to own vault in this organization? And like, nobody raised their hand. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I was like, you guys have CyberArk today and you're using that for, you know, some, some kind of on-premises uh, things because, you know, the, the functionality is somewhat limited and they, uh, they're like, yeah, you know, a couple of people in the hand, uh, raise their hand in the back. They're like, yeah, we're the IAM, IAM team. I'm like, well, then you should probably own Vault because Vault is going to be doing the same things that this other product is going to be doing. So you're probably the prime candidate to own Vault. And, you know, they, they kind of quickly put their hands down. They're like, well, you know, we would need to hire people. And, you know, so they didn't want to own it. Um, so honestly, most of the time, you know, long-winded answer, but, you know, most of the time I see it's either the cloud team uh, that owns or the infrastructure team. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times the infrastructure team owns a lot more than they probably should. Uh, so they'll, they'll typically oh, yeah. own it or, you know, whether it's an automation team or something like that. But, yeah, not to say one's right, wrong, or indifferent, but that's, that's generally what I've seen across the customer base that I've worked with so far. Absolutely. It will differ from organization to organization. And I mean, you have the concept of, of owning Vault, but you also have the concept of, of permissioning, uh, which is uh, very skilled. And a team like uh, the IAM team are, are probably best placed to uh, come up with a permissioning model that works for the organization. They can take the, the business logic and kind of implement that into the way that they permission things for, for people and for applications. Um, 
in some cases, it means they're best place to own the permissioning model, but maybe not best place to own the uh, actual infrastructure, uh, which is Vault in this case. Um, so yeah, there's no right or wrong answer, but you know, it's a debate that goes on quite often, and I, I just had to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a tough one, man. I mean, you know, in regards to like policies and things like that, you know, what I try to do is uh, use you know a code repository, and maybe like the security team owns that repo, right? And so if the application team or the infrastructure team or whoever wants to be able to change their policies, right? They have to submit a PR and the security team has to approve it and say, hey, that's okay. Or no, that violates our policies and things like that. Because most of the time it's the security team that understands and, and knows the policies that the, the um, organization needs to be, you know, abide by. So whether those are regulatory compliances or just like internal policies um, that need to abide by. So a lot of times that's what I'll try to push customers into doing is, hey, let's put all these policies, you know, into GitHub, into GitLab, into whatever. And then security owns that repo. And so when you want to make a change, do a PR, security is like yes or no. And then we can have something like a Jenkins or some CICD pipeline that can maybe like automatically push, you know, that new policy or that updated policy to the, uh, you know, to the vault infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean, again, you always have a lot of different teams that are um, involved, you know, with a vault deployment. Um, so, yeah, again, it's it's very, very dependent on the, the organization. Because like I said, sometimes the infrastructure guys are also, you know, the the security folks. And so they're, they're you know, wearing multiple hats. And um, so, yeah, it's a tough one. Absolutely. And that, that kind of leads nicely into kind of the, the next portion, which is more about operationalizing vault. So before we kind of delve into that, let's just kind of recap on a couple of things because we're talking about uh, who should who should own Vault and some of the different things that go into that. And the reason why I'm bringing that back up is there's a difference between an engineer and an analyst. Um, so if your organization has security analysts, uh, they're going to be very different to security engineers. Um, analysts, uh, they won't be so well versed in some of the... Um, the software deployment lifecycle kind of methods that we use, the the automated deployment pipelines, and mm -hmm. you know the uh, continuous integration, uh, the, these kind of uh, ways of working, they, they won't be so well versed in that. Um, and even as a code first kind of approach, uh, it's probably not their bread and butter. Uh, whereas if you look at a security engineer, they probably will understand these concepts and practice it on a daily basis. Um, so, with that kind of uh, context in mind we're talking about operationalizing vaults. So now what we want to do is we want to try to automate as much of the um, manual tasks as possible. In order to do that, what kind of experience levels do the teams have to have with just engineering approaches in general? This is actually nothing to do with vault. This is just being able to write a pipeline and, you know, write, write some um, code if, if you need to, to automate certain things. What, what kind of experience do you think is required from a team to start to operationalize maybe the simplest things in Vault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going back to what we just talked about training, training has got to be a huge one, right? So you, you, these these folks are going to try to automate, you know, the deployment or operas like opera, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> Vault, or <laughs> I can't talk today. But, <laughs> um, you know, they've, they've got to really understand, like, you know, what's going on, right? I mean, the last thing you want to do is try to automate, you know, a bad process, right? So, um, so yeah, these folks really need to understand, you know, from a training aspect, um, but, you know, they also need to understand like, you know, how vault works and, you know, how, uh, how they want to consume vault. 
um, as well. So, you know, I'm the, the book that I'm almost, uh, almost done writing. Um, you know, I'm actually working on a, a, a an additional chapter uh, that we just decided on last week um, is, is how do we integrate, you know, Terraform and Vault. And so the kind of three pieces that I'm working through is like, okay, how do you deploy Vault with Terraform, right? How do you use Terraform to deploy components of Vault, right? So configuring, configuring Vault itself using Terraform, and then how do you consume secrets from Vault with Terraform? So I'm kind of talking about all three of those things, but I think the middle one is, is the most applicable uh, to this subject here is, you know, if you're going to automate the deployment of Vault, you know, Terraform is a, is a you know, beautiful uh, integrated product, right? That, that can uh, do a Absolutely. lot of different things. So not only can you, you deploy the infrastructure itself, as we already talked about with Terraform, but you can also configure all the components within um, Terraform as well. So, you know, one of my examples is like, you know, how, hey, how do we uh, deploy Vault? And then how do we um, uh, go ahead and automate, you know, the, the creation of a new auth method for LDAP and link that up with all of our, um, you know, LDAP servers, and we've got a, a you know, a service account that manages that connectivity and uh, all those kind of things. So how do you do that? Um, and the benefit of doing that as well is that even if, if Vault is up and running for a long time, and you know, you're, you've got tons of applications and things like that, if you start integrating, um, or start using like namespaces, you know, within Vault, then being able to use Terraform um, to configure that is, is perfect. Right, because every time a new team comes to the uh, vault operation teams and says, "Hey, I also want a namespace. I also want a namespace." Right, you know, each namespace you know contains its own auth methods and secret engines and all those kind of things. And so, being able to use a Terraform to be able to create a namespace and not only create that namespace, but go ahead and create an auth method or create a secrets engine or whatever um, is is perfect. I mean, it's it's great. And and so the analysts, you know, what we can do is. You know, especially if you're using something like a, a TFE, where you can have a more of a private module registry, is you know you can maybe enable have the Vault operations team go and enable and create that namespace, whether that's automated or whether that's manual. But then the analyst can also go to TFE and they can start consuming some of those private modules and say, hey, I need to go work with not my namespace. My namespace is you know cloud or you know whatever data team or whatever. But in my name, in my namespace, I need an LDAP auth method. I need, um, you know, an AWS secrets engine. I need, you know, these kind of things, uh, PKI, you know, whatever. Uh, analyst probably isn't doing that, but uh, <laughs> but they can go into into TFE and they can kind of start consuming those those modules, and they don't necessarily have to understand, you know, how to configure Vault because they can kind of go in and uh, you know consume those modules, and those modules will kind of take care of the configuration for them. And so they just need to add a few, like, okay, I want to call it this thing, you know, whatever. And then they can start immediately consuming, um, you know, resources out of that particular namespace that they've used, um, you know, Terraform to, you know, kind of configure. Absolutely. It's just like filling out a form once you have a module. All the yep. complexity is like sort of abstracted away from you when you literally just give Absolutely. it the values you need. Terraform takes yep. care of Let the Let the vault team, let, let the Terraform team handle, handle the heavy lifting. And then folks that... Um, don't know vault or you just don't want to train them because they don't necessarily need to know the ins and outs of vaults, like let them consume, you know, those automated processes and, you know, then they can kind of configure their own namespace, however they need um, based upon the modules. And, you know, the beauty of using like a private module registry is that those modules are typically written by the infrastructure team or the vault team or whoever, you know, are, is already using Terraform, but it can also be blessed by security 
right, as well before they're actually published to the private module registry. So you know that anything published to this private module registry, you know, uh, works, right? Because the infrastructure team or whoever has written it and, you know, tested it and things, but it's also been blessed by security and it follows our processes and, and our policies internally. So we don't have to worry about analysts going and, you know, opening up things to the world because our, our Terraform uh, private module registry, you know, our, our modules in there um, only do so much, right? And they follow our standards. Okay, let's let's move on a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about um, since we're on the operational kind of things. Let's talk a bit about disaster recovery. Uh, now, I've had some clients in the past whose um, absolute backup plan was to print out the unsealed keys, and uh, now they would have gotten rid of root tokens. So they've just got the unsealed keys or recovery keys, mm -hmm. and they would split them across different physical safes inside the office, and they were absolutely scared of losing the secrets that were involved right um they didn't want to store it in any other kind of system or anything like that they had physical safes which were fire rated and whatever the other kind of physical certifications there are for uh safes and that's what they would do and every time if they rotate it every every 60 days or every 90 days they would have to go through this song and dance which is all documented where they rotate the keys and they have to print them off with four eyes and all those kind of processes there and stick it inside a safe. What in Before we even get into how you should handle disaster recovery, what are some of the kind of discovery uh, pieces that you need to conduct uh, before trying to design a disaster recovery strategy for Vault? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot of it depends on how your applications that are going to consume Vault, uh, how are they laid out, right? And so, so some of the organizations I've worked with, you know, they're, they've deployed all their applications in a single region in AWS, you know, just across multiple AZs. And to them, that meets all the policies that the, the business has for redundancy, right? They don't necessarily need to be in multiple, um, you know, multiple regions and, and things like that. Um, and so in that case, right, we can, we, you know, we probably don't need a performance replica, replica um, out there, like another cluster, um, unless we just really need to scale, uh, you know, rights and things like that across the cluster or across the environment. But uh, so most of the time, you know, there in that case, you know, we're doing something like a, a disaster recovery cluster. Um, and then we're also, you know, obviously taking snapshots, uh, constant snapshots right, of our console or our raft back in. Uh, and then saving those to like an S3 bucket or something that has a, you know, very, you know, high availability time, but also very high level of durability um, as well. Because the last thing we want to do is, you know, have those files corrupted and things like that. And we can also go a step further and take those those um, snapshots and we can, you know, replicate them over to a second region uh, as well. So just in case. So, but in the case of like a, you know, an organization that has multiple um, regions where applications are active, active, um, you know, it just, I guess it depends on the, the customer and how, uh, you know, for one, budgetary-wise, if they're running Vault Enterprise, you know, how many uh, performance clusters, how many disaster recovery clusters um, are they going to buy? So, you know, if they're running in multiple regions, right, we'll probably have a primary cluster here. We probably have a uh, performance cluster, you know, in a second region, especially if we're running ActiveActive Active again. But um, a lot of times we'll either have a local disaster recovery cluster or we can kind of do a crisscross thing where, you know, East has a, a disaster recovery cluster in the West and West has one in the East, right? Yeah, cross-site um, replication. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of having 
almost both, right? So if you have a local disaster recovery cluster, that will save you in the event that only Vault goes down and not all of your other applications. Yes. Right. And, but it will not save you if, you know, in the entire US East One, um, which has the greatest reputation in AWS, um, <laughs> if that whole thing like goes down, right? And yeah, so that means your applications go down, your vault goes down, like everything goes down. And so a disaster recovery cluster is going to do you no good in that sense because, you know, the entire region, right, is down. I don't think we've seen an entire region, but we've seen multiple availability zones uh, go down or problems with S3 buckets that cause, you know, kind of a um, you know, lingering effect on a lot of different services. So, yeah, so... Yeah, I guess it really depends on what you have to do is kind of focus on the application because, you know, ultimately it's the applications that are going to be consuming um, the services that Vault is providing. And so, again, if you're in a single region, you know, kind of focus on that region, whether you're you know deploying a disaster recovery cluster. Um, and remember, cluster itself um, has, you know, provides local availability, right? So you've got one avail one active node. And you can have really as many, you know, standby nodes as you want, um, you know, especially in open source, but, you know, you're, it doesn't scale. It's, it's only just a bunch of standby nodes waiting to, waiting to become the, the primary, the, the active node. But um, so, yeah, again, it's, you kind of have to focus on application architecture and, and, and follow that um, when you're deploying Vault. So I just want to add a caveat to, to what Brian has said you don't have a backup plan or a disaster recovery strategy in place unless you've practiced it successfully. So when you have it and you've planned it out, you have to actually try it out. You know, if you're trying to transfer data over some kind of network and it turns out that in theory it should work well, but in reality it doesn't really transfer the data quick enough and things are timing out, then, you know, you don't have a successful sort of disaster recovery solution. So you have to test it out. You have to test it at regular intervals because that's also part of the training. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that in terms of some of the practice of operational elements? Would you class that as training yourself as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we yeah, like you said, we yeah, backups are backups are great, but unless they're tested, you know, you, you don't have a backup, right? <laughs> so um, I I get to tell you, I've done that so many times in the past where. You know, using you know using some you know VMware products to or not VMware branded products, but you know against my VMware environment, and we're like, hey, these are backing up super fast. But then when you know customer comes back and says, hey, we need this restored, you know, it took hours and hours and hours to restore, and we're like, okay, we got to fix that, right? And so yeah, same thing. You know, obviously for Vault is, um, you know, we can we can take all the snapshots we want, we can you know do backups, we can do whatever we want. But if we can't, you know, quickly restore to get service back up online, you know, as quickly as possible, then, you know, they're not, they're not doing you much good. Right. So, um, you know, a few things that you might, you know, try is, you know, obviously promoting, you know, have a, have an outage on the, the primary, uh, cluster and then promote a disaster recovery, uh, cluster, you know, up to the primary. Um, and then you, you know, you probably have to either blow away the disaster recovery or, uh, reinstall it or, or whatever you know, to make the to turn on the primary back and get replication going again. But, um, but yeah, I mean, those are, those are the type of events that need to be tested, um, you know, for, for an environment just to ensure that in the event of an actual disaster, like we are confident that we could quickly promote a disaster recovery cluster or a performance um, replicated cluster, you know, to a primary 
And then keep in mind that there's also a lot of um, other kind of ancillary things that need to happen along with that too, right? So applications are probably hitting vault with a DNS name, right? Now, if you're moving, you know, a cluster, you know, you're moving the primary cluster from east to west or whatever, like that DNS name needs to also be updated to point to the new cluster. Um, you know, you make sure that all the firewalls and security groups and all those kind of things in a, in a cloud world, you know, also allow the ability for clients to come connect to it. So if, you know, you initially set up the security group to say, hey, I'm only going to allow replication traffic, right, for my primary cluster. And then you fail over to your disaster recovery cluster and you're not allowing like the default port of 8200 from, you know, your applications. Then obviously your applications aren't going to be able to communicate, you know, with your the newly promoted uh, cluster. So all those types of things have to be uh, taken into consideration, you know, for disaster recovery. Can you use uh, something like application load balancers and maybe um, some health check with some rules to do some rerouting based on responses that you get back from Vault to solve your DNS issue there? Yeah, we've seen some customers do that where they kind of put a load balancer in front of the load balancer, right? So we have a <laughs> kind of a primary, more like a, a GSLB, you know, kind of situation where, um, you know, you put a kind of load balancer, some some solution like an F5 or something like that. And that's where the, the primary uh, DNS name is resolved from. And then we can send, hey, you know, most of the time during normal operations, you know, our primary cluster is in this data center, right? So reroute there. But there's also health checks in place to say, you know, if the local load balancer health checks are failed, then we're going to send traffic over to the disaster recovery cluster because most likely, you know, we've automated that process and we've now, um, you know, failed over to that the disaster recovery. So, yeah, so we can absolutely use uh, things like that. You know, if you're, I'm, I'm an AWS guy, it's no secret. So if you're using something like a Route 53, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of kind of like um, uh, failover, you know, different different types of DNS records um, that we can use in terms of like policies to say like, hey, you know, the primary is this cluster, but the secondary is over here. Uh, and we can also, you know, consume those health checks on the, the load balancer that front ends each individual cluster that we can kind of consume those and bring those over to Route 53 and, uh, you know, base the, the decision making process on those local health checks uh, for that as well. So, yeah, tons of options there. And again, it's, you know, it depends on what technology the, the organization is already using, right? So you already have F5s in place, you're doing things like GSLB, um, you know, go ahead and use that. Um, if you're doing, you know, native cloud, right. Use those native cloud, uh, solutions where possible, right. Simplify, definitely simplify your life there and don't, you know, don't try to do anything too complicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so final question on, um, operational elements of this is other than, uh, sort of disaster recovery and automated deployments, what other kind of, uh, re repetitive manual things can we try to automate? Um, so things like root token generation, for example, um, is that something you would even recommend that people try to automate or do you think that's best left manual? Yeah, I, yeah, personally, I think root, root token generation is a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous action, right? And very, very few people, not to hone on that one, but very, very few people should be able to generate a root token um, and when a root token is generated, like alarms and bells and all those kind of things should go off, right? To the to the knock, the security team, all those kind of things, because you want to make sure that you always have eyes on a root token, because a root token, you know, gives you unfeathered access to everything in Vault. 
Um, so you always want to make sure that a, you know, when you first stand up a, a vault cluster, right, you get that initial root token, use that root tokens, you to only configure new auth methods, and then get rid of that sucker, right? Get rid of that thing. We don't want to have one of those around. Um, and so, yeah, so that goes back, you know, goes to audit devices and things like that. So you want to make sure that, you know, telemetry and audit devices and all those kind of things are logging properly. Um, and they're also being consumed by, you know, a Splunk or a Datadog or, you know, some log aggregation tool. And then not only that, but you have the proper rules set up in there to, you know, ring those bells and alarms for, you know, certain, um, you know, certain events, especially around a root token. Definitely. I was going to bring up actually login and, and the best ways of doing that. But I think from a high level, you covered that. So I'm not going to ask that question there. One thing that customers have tried to automate a lot, and I've never really seen it with any great success, is failover uh, between primary and performance replicas or disaster recovery, whatever it is. Um, have you seen any customers successfully implement that? And do you even think it's a good idea? Um, because obviously it's not it's not functionality that's built into Vault to allow automated failover. And I believe that's by design. Um, yep. So do you think that customers should be trying to automate that? Um, and if so, have you seen any kind of success stories with that? So I personally have not seen um, people automate that, but I'm a big fan of the idea. And, and when I say automate, I mean that someone needs to go manually push the button for this yeah. automated script to happen, right? It, it yeah. should never be, you know, based upon monitoring or, you know, health checks and things like that, because, you know, every, also every organization has a different definition of what an outage is, right? Exactly. And so if vaults, you know, if, if, if an organization deploys vault and, you know, say if it's an open source and the only reason they're deploying is because, you know, the cloud team, um, you know, it's just consuming secrets when they need to, like, then obviously we don't care, right? If it goes down, but if an organization has deployed like enterprise with performance replication and all those kind of things, um, and there's a, you know, a network hiccup or there's a, you know, a problem with, you know, temporary problem with AWS, um, you know, between regions or a customer between their data centers or something like that. And, you know, a health check happens to fail, um, but it, you know, comes back immediately right? The last thing we want this automated you know, process to do is go ahead and promote a disaster recovery cluster or a performance um, replicated cluster uh, to a primary. Because now if that happens, what we have is a, more of a split brain scenario where we have a primary in this data center, we have a primary in this data center, they're supposed to be replicating, but now they <laughs> both think they're primaries. And now you got a problem, um, especially when you have uh, an active active scenario where you have applications in both data centers consuming the local cluster. Uh, you've got a problem, you know, in that case. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of automating it just because, you know, it makes things faster. And, you know, a lot of times, like what I said, there's a lot of ancillary pieces to failing over from a primary, the DNS, the firewalls, all those other kind of things. So definitely a fan of automating that whole process. But again, somebody needs to go in and push the button, you know, for it to happen whenever they say like, okay, we're declaring you know, this data center dead, right? Because it's going to be, you know, power outage or some caught on fire, you know, let them decide on when, you know, to actually fail over and when not to fail over. Um, so that's, that's kind of my take on it right now. Yeah, I definitely have that approach to automation. I, I like to automate the little pieces and then mm -hmm. where it's appropriate, automate the automation. That's yep. kind of how I approach it. So in some cases, if like we're talking about uh, creating a disaster recovery token and failing over, um, 
you probably don't want to do that. Um, but like you say, if you've automated the actual process of being able to do that, you can literally press the button and the code will execute and you have your failover done. So yeah, um, definitely it, the machines can't take over everything. They can take over a lot of things, but you know, that's yeah. definitely not one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those, those critical decision-making processes are need to be yeah, left, left to the, the customer, the business itself. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, I, I hope the listeners have learned a lot from that. I mean, You've, you've been speaking to two consultants uh, for the best part of almost an hour uh, yeah. and we didn't bill you for it. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Is there any parting words that you want to leave the, the listeners with? No, Rob, I yeah, definitely appreciate the opportunity to come on board. Uh, always a pleasure when our paths cross and yeah, um, hopefully, uh, you know, this, this HashiCast has kind of given you a little bit of an extension, you know, of, of the quick talk that I had at HashiConf and, uh, yeah, any questions, you know, happy to, you know, uh, feel free to reach out, you know, to Rob or I or uh, whatever. But yeah, thanks again for, for everything. You've been listening to HashiCast with your host, myself, DevOps Rob. Today's guest has been Brian Cruson. Be sure to tune in next time.